Good afternoon, everybody. Last week, uh, oh, and uh, I, I enjoyed the, I enjoyed Rocky, and uh, that was fun. So uh, they've set the bar pretty high. So uh, we're going to expect something even better next month. And uh, so uh, this is um, the end of our first quarter for our Imagine campaign, and some of my remarks will be directed towards that. I was not here last Sunday. I was invited and had the wonderful privilege to speak in a College Station, Texas. It's a very beautiful city, not far from Austin. The pastor picked me up and while driving to my hotel, I, I was very, very impressed with one magnificent building after another. And uh, I soon realized why they called it College Station, <clears throat> because that entire city revolves around that college. And uh, it wasn't the usual collection of tall buildings and, and uh, office things that, I, that I'm, I, I see so often during my travels from one downtown to another. But, but downtown College Station was one, was a succession of modern stone-clad buildings, one after another. Uh, beautiful, beautiful campus. It's the home of Texas A&M University. In college slang, it's known as the home of the Aggies. I don't know what an Aggie is, but uh, that's where they call home. And um, it is, without question, one of the most beautiful college campuses I, I have ever seen. And so to Pastor Lawrence and to the wonderful congregation of Lifeline, I want you to know I'm grateful for the privilege to have been with you. I had a wonderful time. Uh, all I knew before I went to college, I had heard the phrase. All, all I knew was a phrase, the home of the 12th man. And, um, but I, I, didn't, I didn't know the history. I didn't know the history. And so while I was there, as I usually do, Whenever I go to a different city, I try to find out unique things about that area. And um, one, 100 years ago, in January 1922, the Aggies, the football team, they were, they were playing in what was known as the Dixie Classic in Dallas. And they were heavily outgunned and they were not expected to win. <clears throat> there was a former football player by the name of E. King Gill, who was up in the press box helping the news writers identify the players that were on the field. And um, what was happening on the field wasn't pretty. And uh, the football team was plagued by injuries. And uh, the first team players were quickly getting knocked out, kind of like a game of whack-a-mole with Chuck E. Cheese. And uh, the coach, who was an interesting guy, his, uh, his name was Bible, Coach Bible. And um, he was required to keep going to the bench to get the reserves to fill in for his first team players who were just getting injured one after another. And um, he was down. He had no one left. And if he couldn't put... 11 players on the field. He was going to have to forfeit the game 
And they, it was bad enough that they were really getting beaten, but to have to forfeit the game and to lose that way would have been especially embarrassing. So the coach remembered that Gill was up in the press box helping the newspaper reporters. He got a message to him to come down, and when Gill returned to the sideline, the coach told him, suit up, I need you. And so Gill ran under the bleachers and of course didn't have a uniform, so he borrowed the uniform of an injured player named Weir. It was dirty, it was sweaty. Uh, Weir had been knocked out of the game in the first quarter. But Gill returned back to the sideline with his dirty uniform on, standing by the coach, ready for when the coach said, we need you, go in. When the last play was over, the, the Aggies had pulled off what even today, 100 years later, is considered one of the greatest upsets in college football history. They won the game 22-14. to 14. And though he never actually played, when the game was over, Gill was the only guy standing, standing by his coach, ready to go in. And his willingness to serve his team 100 years ago has been passed down from generation to generation. And to this day, Texas A&M student body refuses to sit down during the entire football game or basketball game in honor of what is known as the 12th man. The power, I saw it, the power of the 12th man is is echoed in the unity and the loyalty and the willingness of those people to serve when they're asked to do so. And um, in 1988, this phrase was added to the stadium. And that, that year is very important because in 1982, Texas A&M and their football program were in real trouble. And they hired a guy by the name of Jackie Sherrill. And he was under enormous pressure to win. I heard uh, one of the coaches years ago that coached for Ohio State, they told him, <clears throat> I think it was Urban Meyer, they told him, you can lose every game of the year, but you better win that game with Michigan. <laughs> and <clears throat> Jackie Sherrill was under enormous pressure to turn the football program around. And he came up with a novel idea that was inspired by the tradition to take it to a new level. So while I was there, I did some homework with the Texas A&M student newspaper. It's known as the Battalion. And I went all the way back to 1982, February the 21st, and this is what it said. Persons interested in trying out for the 12th man kickoff team need to report to Kyle Field on Monday. No prior experience is required. <laughs> Cheryl had a hunch. He said later he knew something that no other coach in the country knew. He knew the spirit 
of the school that he was asked to represent. He was mercilessly, you gotta understand, in football, you know, you got offense and defense. And so the kickoff team, these, these, are, the, these, are, these are kamikazes. These are guys that when the ball is kicked to the other team, these are the guys that are running at these fellas that just caught the ball. They're running 60 yards or more flat out with one thought in mind, impact. <laughs> and what Jackie Sherrill did was he said, I'm, I'm going to take guys that aren't on the football team and I'm going to see if there are men willing to come out of the stands and be the cook kickoff return team. I want them, I want them, these aren't pros. These aren't, you know, highly recruited athletes. He, he was mercilessly criticized for what he was doing. The other coaches said he was out of his mind. The sports reporters said he was naive. And so he had his tryouts. No, you don't, you don't, you don't, it doesn't matter if you've ever played football before. I want you to come down here and try out. Most of them, of course, had a little football in their past. But for the most part, this was a bunch of young men who had hung up their cleats. As soon as the last strains of their high school band had faded into the night, for years, a lot of these fellows had been Friday night heroes. But the last whistle had blown. They had spit the last blade of grass from their teeth and the last cheerleader had walked off the field and they had walked white sweat, dirt off their face on the gridiron for the last time. They had kissed their last homecoming queen. At least that's what they thought. Because that was the cold, hard reality facing these fellas. There would be no more wins. There would be no more losses for them. Memories would grow brighter by day, but the glory of it all had dimmed and basically now it was gone. There possibly could have been a few smaller colleges or a handful of junior colleges that might have wanted them and might have given them a chance to play. But you see, dad's money was on Texas A&M. <clears throat> and uh, to a man, they weren't there to play ball. They were there to get an education. And life was no longer measured in yards or hash marks. The future lay at the end of four, maybe five years of study, <clears throat> not a hundred yards away. And with few exceptions, none of them had the ghost of a chance of ever wearing a Texas A&M football uniform. Division I football, which is the highest level in college football, with all of its collective wit and wisdom, had glanced at these players and with a lot of prejudiced minds, they quickly said, <clears throat> they're just a little too slow. They're too short. They didn't weigh enough, and obviously some of them weighed too much. They were out of shape. They hadn't lifted weights. They were better at chasing banana splits now than running backs. They simply didn't have the speed, the quickness, the agility, the strength, the muscle to play big-time Division I college football. At least that's what all the critics said. 
But Division I didn't matter to Jackie Sherrill. He knew the traditions. He knew the legacies. Individually and collectively, they were the heartbeat of everything that was so special about Texas A&M. The original 12th man. They were ready to come down out of the stands if he needed them. But unlike E. King Gill, these guys that Jackie Sherrill chose, they did take the field again and again and again. For six years, this handful, this motley collection of nondescript walk-ons, wild eyes, ears laid back, <laughs> Man, they had one thought in mind. I'm not going to let that guy gain one yard. Nobody from one end of the country to the other believed that they would ever be able to stand up with scholarship athletes. Successful. I mean, most high-dollar, buttoned-up football coaches thought Jackie Sherrill was crazy. Maybe even crazier than these renegades that he had hired to be the 12th man kickoff team. They were walk-ons, but then again, as Cheryl said, they really were run-ons because after he chose them, he said everywhere he saw them, they were running. Running hard, on the field, off the field, in practice. One, just unison, e -e even when they knew that some six foot seven, 290 pound, all-state, all-American defensive end was, not, was just a step away from taking that 108 God-given pounds that they had and slamming them flat on their back. They never hesitated. Some of them, I saw pictures, had all district patches on their letter jackets when they first came to try out. But all district didn't count anymore. A few had played on Friday nights before 30,000 people. Some had played in just small stadiums with three to 400 fans on a Friday night. One of these people that Cheryl hired had never played one down of high school football. He came from the Aggie marching band. <laughs> he'd been on the golf team and he'd been on the tennis team back in high school. <clears throat> Another had to choose between playing football or cello and he chose to play the cello. But on kickoffs at home and away from Kyle Field, they had one goal. They were not going to let that team get any yardage. Even though they played against teams who threw the very best. They played against all Americans. They played against a Heisman Trophy winner by the name of Tim Brown. Tackled after one yard gain by a man named Warren Barhost, who took Brown's towel that he had tucked in his pants and took it as a trophy. Look what I did against the Heisman Trophy winner. During his years at Texas A&M, Jackie Sherrill's 12th man kickoff team never allowed one touchdown running back from kickoff. Very few of the opposing teams ever even got halfway down the field. In eight seasons, <laughs> they held 
the opposing team to an average of 15 yards punt return. For years, they were number one in the nation, even though they didn't play college ball, even though they weren't recruited, even though they weren't sought after. They just came out of the stands. They just came out of the bleachers. And when Jackie Shero left in 1988, this is what they did. They took this phrase and they put it on the second tier of that stadium, the home of the 12th man. As you can see, nobody's sitting. That stadium seats 107,000 people. None of them sit down during the whole game because they said, this is the home of the 12th man. I'm here at the end of our first quarter of Let's Imagine. I honestly don't remember how many trips I've made in the last three months. I, what I do know is that on these trips that I've made, whether it's been the pastor or multiple saints that were in that church, they're watching what's going on here. I wish I had kept record of the number of texts I have received from pastors, saints, friends, family members who have gained strength and, fam and faith and encouragement from the journey we're on. Let's face it. That Bible said Jesus Christ loves to take the simple and confound, confound the wise. He loves to take the weak things and confound the mighty. And we as a church have collectively admitted that we're the poster children for that verse. There's never been a weaker, more simple bunch than First Church. But this is what Paul said in the message in Corinthians 12. I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. <laughs> See, when a capital campaign company comes with a church, they're hoping if that church had a $100,000 income the year before, they're hoping at best for one time. They're hoping they can raise $200,000. And then the capital campaign company always gets their $50,000 up front when you take your first offering, which is always, it's right there, you know, it's the good stuff. It's, it's, it's just, to have twice as much is a stretch. My dear friend who spoke here for us, Brother Mitchell from Indiana, their church committed three times their annual income for their building. I've been friends for years with a church that's in Arkansas. Recently, they stunned people by giving four times. But when we did our offering in April, we've done something that so far no one in the United States has done. We have committed five times a year to the new campaign. Five times. <clears throat> you see, ladies and gentlemen, when we pull this off, and we're going to pull it off, it's going to be a witness that says, if that simple bunch of weak folks up there in Michigan can do this, what could God do with us? Because when we're weak, that's when he takes the stage. That's when he shows up and shows off. 
You see, she was one of society's no deposit, no return leftovers. She was a broken woman who resorted to selling herself to survive. But that was the woman who ended up saving the spies at Jericho and preserving the message that says, I think we can do this. A refugee, a little girl taken as a trophy of war, we do not know her name, to labor in the home of a Syrian general by the name of Naaman, who's got leprosy, but it was that little girl, that nobody that made a way for him to be healed of leprosy. A greasy bag with three-day-old fried fish and stale bread became 500 fresh filet sandwiches in the hands of Jesus. The bleached jawbone of a long-dead donkey became a scythe and a sickle in the hands of Samson and he mowed down a thousand Philistines. But I challenge you to find one verse in the Bible that talks about Samson's bulging biceps or his muscles. He wasn't known for his muscles. I believe he looked like us. And when the anointing of God came on him, God took something weak, took something that nobody would have ever believed could have done that and and pulled off a miracle. What is your mental picture of Jesus Christ? Do you think of the celebrated picture of this handsome Nazarene with a nice tan and a nice trim beard and an impressive mane of auburn hair? I'll tell you what the Bible says. There is no beauty that we should desire him. The message said there was nothing attractive about him. Nothing to cause us to take a second look. I'm telling you, Jesus didn't look like Brad Pitt. I'm telling you, Jesus didn't look like some celebrated star. I'm telling you, Jesus was just an average looking man. I'm here to remind you of a verse that's always intrigued me. And they compelled one Simon, a Cyrenian, who passed by coming out of the country, the father of Alexander and Rufus, to bear his cross. I don't remember how long ago it's been, but I do remember the night. I'm not a man that's given to a lot of dreams. I've had a couple through the years, but I remember this night. I remember waking up at three in the morning, crying, because I had a dream. Jesus was carrying his cross and he fell. And they reached into the crowd and they grabbed a man and said, carry this cross. And I'll never forget it because in my dream, he was black. He was black. So I got my Bible at three in the morning and I found this verse, Simon of Cyrene. I didn't even know where Cyrene was. It's North Africa. This is the original 12th man. This is the guy from the crowd. This is probably an African proselyte who was in Jerusalem for the feast and had his boys. And they said, carry this cross. A lot of people know about the nails in the wrist and in the feet, but what you have to remember is that Jesus was brutalized before he was ever hung on the cross. His back was beaten 39 times. This is not red welts, but these were things, strips of leather, and on the end were broken pieces of glass and metal. 
when that, 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 that thing hit him and was pulled, it, 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 it ripped his back apart. 39 different stripes. I'm telling you, we're not talking about a little bruise here. I'm telling you, his back was sliced apart. So as he's carrying the cross, that blood on his back is on that tree. Which tells me that the very first man that actually came in contact with the blood of Jesus was black and not white. There are seven no mores in the book of Revelation. Six of them make perfect sense to me. No more sickness, no more night. I get all that, no more tears. But there's one that I never quite understood. It said there'll be no more sea. But the more and more I read it, I realized that John... John was on the Alcatraz of his day, a place known as Patmos. See, you, 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 you don't need guard dogs and fences and guns and lights on Patmos because the cold, strong currents of the Mediterranean were the fences. You're not going to swim off of there. So John gets down by the surf. He's getting as close physically to his brothers and sisters in Ephesus as he can possibly get. And then he writes this. And now I understand what he meant. One of these days, nothing's going to separate us. One of these days, nothing's going to keep us apart. One of these days, there'll be no distance between us. Because there's not going to be a ghetto in the New Jerusalem. There will be no eight-mile road halfway down through that thing. It's somebody from every nation, every tribe, and every kindred, and every tongue. And this is the verse that's intrigued me for years. It's conjecture on my part. I think it's probable, but I can't prove this. But I read it to you again. Now there were in the church that was at Antioch certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas and Simeon that was called Niger and Lucius of Cyrene and Manaen, which had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch and Saul. See, there's four Herods in the Bible. There's Herod Antipas, Herod the Great, Herod Agrippa the first, Herod Agrippa the second. You have to understand that these were the four dumbest hillbillies that ever walked on the planet. Because Herod Antipas is the guy that cut off the head of John the Baptist. Herod the Great could have released Jesus, but because of political pressure and what the Poles had to say, he couldn't do it. It was Agrippa the first that cut off John's brother's head in the book of Acts. It was Agrippa II that had Paul and could have let him go if Paul would have been willing to pay him a bribe, but he refused to pay it off. The best I could get out of any of them is, you've almost persuaded me. These guys have access to John the Baptist, Jesus, James and John and the apostle Paul, and not a one of them are in the kingdom. But there is this curious man by the name of Manan. The Bible said that he is related to Herod the Tetrarch. He is known in other translations as the stepbrother of Herod. Frost wrote years ago, two roads converged in the woods and I took the one less traveled and that made all the difference. Do you know there are two Judases in the Bible? There's a Judas and there's a Judas Iscariot. In fact, if you read the book of John or Acts, it'll say Judas, not Iscariot. <laughs> Do you know what Abba means? I've taught you for years. Anybody remember what Abba means? 
father or daddy. You know, it's a term of endearment. Galatians 4 mentions it. Romans 8 says, we have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba. All right, Abba. Does anybody know what the word bar in the Bible means? B-A-R. Son of, son of. When you talk about blind, bar Timaeus. Timaeus means blind man, which most people believe Bartimaeus' dad was blind as well. He was second generation blind. But he talked about Simon Bar-Jonah, son, son. So now use that revelation with the word Barabbas, Bar-Abba. There were two sons of God there, you see. There was, there was one son of the father that we know as our redeemer. They chose the other Bar-Abba, the other son of the father. I can do this again and again and again and again and again in the scripture. Ladies and gentlemen, you can have the very best environment in the world and not serve the Lord. Adam and Eve backslid in the garden. Korah backslid following Moses, who is known as the meekest man in the earth. Korah backslid following Moses. Judas Iscariot backslid following Jesus. Ananias and Sapphira backslid in the first church in Jerusalem. Demas backslid following Paul and Lucifer backslid in heaven. You can have the best environment in the world and not make it. But I can prove to you that Moses was an adopted boy and should have had a chip on his shoulder. But when he came to years, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter and said, let me get one thing straight with you, lady. I'm not an Egyptian. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, for he had respect under the recompense of reward, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Watch this. Esteeming the reproach of Christ, not God, not Lord, esteeming the reproach of Christ, greater riches than all the treasures of Egypt, because he had respect under the recompense of reward. You have to understand something. The concept of Jesus Christ, of God taking on flesh and dying on the cross, that's a New Testament concept. But if you'll be here in Bible study, Wednesday night, I'll show you where it said, and Abraham saw my day and he was glad. I'm telling you, Moses saw Calvary, esteemed the reproach of Christ. He knew that his God was gonna take on flesh and he would suffer and he thought no servant is greater than his Lord. And so even though he knew the balance in the royal checkbook, all he had to do was shut up and he would have been king. But he said, I am not an Egyptian. I'm not an Egyptian. He was an adopted boy. Should have been full of bitterness, as I've seen many of them have. But, but not. Do you know there, there's, there, there, there's a woman named Gomer that was married to a prophet named Hosea. She had three kids. No DNA test, but you know, he, he never did know if any of these kids were his. But the Lord said, you're going to stay with her. And I'm going to use you in his example to Israel that I'll be long suffering, regardless of how much of an adulteress she has been to me. Do you know, you know, in the book of Acts, when Peter was released from prison, it's very specific. It says a, a Roman servant girl, the, the, the Greek word for servant is doulos, which most often is translated slave. Rhoda, a servant, a slave girl answered the door at the prayer meeting. I found out years ago, according to Roman law, slaves were never required to participate in the religion of their master. This girl who didn't have to be at a prayer meeting was there. I can go on and on, ladies and gentlemen. John was on Patmos. 
But the Bible said he got in to paradise. You can have the best environment in the world and not serve the Lord. You can have the lousiest and still serve God. There's a power here. There's a choice. There's an understanding that's going on. Manan was one of those guys. My stepbrother chose this, not me. I'm going to be on the ministry team. I understand how Paul could be there and Barnabas could be there. But what about these two other characters, Lucius of Cyrene and Simeon that's called Niger? You want to use your brain? You want to park your heart here just for a moment and add another G to that there? It's a river, but it means black man. This is the verse, ladies and gentlemen, that gave us the most filthy word in the English language. And yet it is the same verse that gives us one of the greatest lessons in the word because almost every other translation refers to Simeon and Lucius of Cyrene. I am convinced this is the guy. I'm convinced Simeon of Cyrene is on the ministry staff of the church that was in Antioch of Syria. I know he had boys, Rufus and Alexander, and I know in Romans 16, Paul talked about, make sure you salute Rufus because he's been a great strength to me. I can't prove it, but in my heart, I believe this. I believe that the guy who randomly just came out of the crowd and picked up the blood of Jesus ended up, they were not called Christians first in Jerusalem because the Jerusalem church was all Jews. They're called Christians first at Antioch because Antioch is the first interracial New Testament church. That's the way it ought to be. That's the way it ought to be. This is the city we've been called to reach, ladies and gentlemen. This is what we're dealing here. And I know in the book of Acts chapter two, it said, and there were, there, were Par, there were Parthians and Medes and Elamites and dwellers of Mesopotamia and regions around about Phrygia and Pamphylia and Egypt and parts of Libya about Cyrene. Somebody from Cyrene was there on the day of Pentecost when the Holy Ghost was poured out. I believe one of those guys is this guy, Simon. I believe he ended up in this powerful church in Antioch. Why? I think he was a 12th man. I think he was a guy that was willing to come out of the crowd and pick up his cross, amen, and follow Jesus. I think that's what we're dealing with here. I'm here to thank every one of you present in the pew or remotely viewing on live stream. Thank you for standing with us. Thank you for every prayer, every word of encouragement. Thank you for every dollar that's been sacrificed, every effort, every effort to see that the vision lives. But I'm here to offer you an invitation. I'm looking, I'm looking for a reason. Somebody that's here possibly looking for a challenge. Maybe you're here watching, viewing, looking for direction in life. I, I sat in a long district board meeting this week, old business left over from the fall, new business that had to be addressed meeting with one department head after another, listening to their testimonies, their dreams, and also their failures, and wondering if the district board would appropriate the money that they needed to make their, their dreams last and live. And it was a long day, but the very last person that came in was a friend of mine, an older pastor with gray hair like mine, and don't walk as fast as, as he did or I did. But I'll never forget what that man said this past Friday in a board meeting. He said, I have dedicated my entire life to training people. And then he just began to sob. And he said, because the greatest joy in life is ministry. The greatest joy in life is ministry. So I appeal to those of you in the pews and in the bleachers 
those who think that maybe you've played your last game and their memories are all you have now. I'm looking for the 12th man. I'm looking for the 12th woman. I, 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 I'm, I'm looking to someone here, the philosophical question, who am I and why am I here? I'll answer that. All things were created by him and for him and for his pleasure. They are and they were created. There is no fulfillment in life outside of ministry for Jesus Christ. You gotta be willing to pour into somebody other than yourself. In the name of Jesus. In the name of Jesus. His name was Matthias. I've never heard a message about him. I've never heard anybody talk about him. But he, in fact, was the original 12th man. The guy that took the place of Judas Iscariot. I've never put a lot of stock in numbers. But I can't argue with the fact that the number 12 has great significance in the Bible. John said the New Jerusalem will have 12 gates. And don't have 12 foundations. But other, other, other translations said it's 12 floors. 12 floors. And one of those levels in the New Jerusalem is going to be known as Matthias. A faithful follower who saw all of the slots filled until one day he was asked, would you like to be on the team? Kurt Warner played football for Northern Iowa. There are seven rounds in the NFL draft. There are 32 teams in the National Football League. And every year they have draft day. And every year, 32 teams get a pick. And they do this seven times. And after the seventh round of the NFL draft, it's over. Last year, 259 players were chosen from college to go to the pros. Kurt Warner was never drafted. No one even thought to choose him. He went to try out for the Green Bay Packers. He threw two balls and they said, we can't use you. You're never going to make it to the big leagues. So for three years, Kurt Warner played for the Iowa Barnstormers. You ever heard of the Iowa Barnstormers? Me neither. It's an arena football team. But after three years of success... His coach for the Barnstormer said, they're having tryouts for the Rams and the coach is my friend and I made a place for you to try out. They decided to put him as their backup quarterback. But after three games, the Rams' number one star quarterback got injured. And to the horror of the coach and everybody else, he said, all right, Warner, it's your time. Kurt Warner never lost another game. He took his team to the 34th Super Bowl. Not only did they win and win in grand fashion, he was named the most valuable player, not just that year, but the next year. It's still known as the greatest show on turf. (laughs) Kurt Warner is to this day considered the greatest undrafted player in the history of professional football. All he needed was a chance, somebody to believe in him. Somebody that would just be willing to put him on the field. Ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, no one believes in you more than your creator. And David understood it. And this is what he said. Not only did the Lord make you wonderful, he made you to be feared. 
I made you to be feared. I'm here to offer you direction for your life, the rest of your life on this earth. I don't care what your career path is. I don't care what education level you've achieved. I don't care how much money you have or don't have. I don't care whether you have name recognition or not. I'm here looking for the 12th man and the 12th woman. I'm here in this church and on that computer right now going across this country saying, where are you? I'm looking for Caleb, 85 years old, and they're getting ready to go into the land of Canaan. And most of them old guys would say, listen here, Josh, if you're gonna give me a piece of property, if it's not downhill, at least let it be flat. But not Caleb, he said, I want a mountain. That's what I want. I want something going up. I want something tough because I still believe I, 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 I can do this. I, I, Jesus, 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 Jesus. My dad was not a weeper. He was not a crier. My dad left a year ago. And right before he died, I uh, said, Daddy, he was crying. And I, I said, what's wrong? And he said, I, I wish I could have done more for the Lord, Harold, than I did. My mom and dad went to a small city in Illinois, Clinton, Illinois. There were really two families there, just a handful of people. There was a man there and his wife and they were, they, they, their family was under great attack and it was questionable whether the marriage would survive. And my mom and dad poured into John and Marlena. God did a miracle in their life, restored the love in their marriage. And she ended up with a little boy. My daddy who was going into that thing they call the long goodbye, going into dementia. I said, Daddy, do you remember John and Marlena and Clinton and that little blonde-haired kid named Josh? He said, Joshua, yes. His mind was so clear that day. I remember Josh, Josh Carson. I said, Daddy, Josh Carson's not a little boy anymore. He's 42 years old. He's got three kids. And last week, they just voted him in as the pastor of Calvary Tabernacle in Indianapolis. And my dad opened up his eyes and he said, you mean Brother Hershon's church? I said, yeah, Brother Hershon and Brother Mooney. I said, don't you see, Daddy, if you and Mother had never gone to Clinton, Illinois, Calvary Tabernacle wouldn't have a great pastor right now. He squared up his shoulders and he looked at me and he said, well, then I guess I am the man. I guess I am the man. <laughs> I'll never forget, we're going fishing. We went for years into Canada. Whoever caught the biggest fish got the pop cans. It was, wasn't much, four or five dollars worth of empty pop cans when we got back to Michigan. And somehow, Jeff Woodworth always ended up with them pop cans. And my dad looked at me and he said, he's not taking them pop cans home this year. So we went out at noon. Jeffy always went in the evening. He said, you're going for a boat ride, Pastor. Have a nice boat ride. You're not catching no fish. But at 10 minutes after one, my dad's pole went whoop. And he said, I got a snag. And I looked at the end of that pole and it was dancing. And I said, nah, Daddy, snags don't move. And I followed that thing around for 20 minutes until we finally boated this massive fish. I looked at him and he looked at me and we knew we got the pop cans. We got the pop cans. 
We went back home that night. Jeffy said, well, did you enjoy your boat ride? I said, yep, we had a great boat ride. Did you catch anything? And my dad said, yeah, we got a couple. And he reached down that water and he pulled that stringer full of beautiful fish out with that big, massive fish on there. And I'll never forget Jeff Woodworth looking at my dad and said, Harry, you're the man. And my dad said, don't you ever forget it, boy. I'm the man. I'm the man. I don't know who you are here right now. Stand with me, please. Come with me around this altar. We've already had a wonderful altar service. I'm not trying to reinvent the wheel. But I I do want to thank every one of you as a pastor. I want to thank you for the sacrifice you've made. I'm not stupid. I can read the tea leaves. I hear all the negative things just like you do. But see, this is meal barrel religion, ladies and gentlemen. We're not here to stick this in our pocket. We're going to build a new temple. See, there are people. We don't have faces for them yet. We don't have names. We don't have phone numbers. We sure haven't friended them on Facebook yet. But I have prayed and always asked the Lord that this church would have a footprint that would be felt around the world. That's what's going on here right now. You're part of something great. You see, they thought I was crazy. I'm 65 years old. You don't, you don't go into a multi-million dollar building program when you're 65 years old. This church is paid off. We got a couple bucks in the bank. All I need to do is sit still and feather my retirement nest and just wait until it's time for Renee and I to buy something in Florida, which ain't going to happen. <laughs> People said, Harold, you are out of your ever-loving mind to take on a project like that now. But see, like Jackie Sherrill, I knew something that no other pastor in this country knew. I knew the heart of First Church. I knew the kind of people I was responsible for. I knew the way you lived, and I knew what was priority in your life. We're building a tradition here, ladies and gentlemen. This is bigger than you and me. We're building a legacy here that's going to go on and on. Jesus' name. Close your eyes. Everybody's in the choir right now. I will be what you called me to be. I'll say yes. Lord, I agree. My desire
every saint. Hallelujah. 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 Today, today you're king of peace. 
Today we take you out of the halls and put you on the throne. Today, Lord, we take you from in front and on top. We're asking you, Lord, to be the king of peace in our lives. You said if we would do that, of the increase of your government and peace, there would be no end. And so if my hope is in this political arena or in the culture of this world, it's just going to get worse and worse. But if my hope and I can help your government to increase it, I want you to take control of my life. I'm not just going to give you the living room and the kitchen. We're going to give you the backyard. We're going to give you the porch. We're going to give you the basement and the attic. There is no place in our life that's off limits to you right now, Lord Jesus. You be the Lord of my failures and be the Lord of my successes. I make you Lord of my dreams and my aspirations and my hopes. I put you on the throne of my life. If you want me to marry that girl, I will. If not, I won't. Want me to marry that boy, I will. But if you don't, I won't. If you want me to be a servant, I'm more than willing to, Lord. Asking you, God, right now, this is not just a place to come to. This is a place to go from. As we leave this church right now, we make a covenant around this altar. We're going to impact the people that we meet today. I'm asking you, Lord, we're going to tip good when we go to the restaurant. When that waitress looks at that check, she's going to smile knowing it wasn't some cheapskate that was sitting at her table. Amen. They were called Christians first at Antioch. I'm sure there were some doctors there. I'm sure there were some business people there, but they weren't called shop owners first. They, they were called Christians first. We got a lot of different things. People in this place right now do a lot of stuff to support their lives. I want them to be known as apostolics first. I want that to be the priority in our lives. Guide us, guard us, and go with us. In the name of Jesus Christ, we pray and call it done. Amen. Let's thank him together. Thank you, Jesus. It's been an honor to be in church with you today. Greet one another. Say something encouraging to one another. We have guests here. Please greet Sister Ellis and Sister Barbara Sharp. There are other people that are here for the very first time. Don't just shake the hands of the people you know. Find somebody you don't know. Introduce yourself to them.